Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. Today I'm speaking with Ida Bazin, a marriage and family counselor in Newport Beach, which is where we're actually doing the interview. And we're doing it outside, so just letting you know that, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of wind, some background noise, and all that. We're going to be covering quite a few different things here. For one, where she was born, how she had to flee from war, culture shock in other parts of the world, and then when she came to the United States of America. We're going to talk about physical memory, uh, anthropology, mythology, religion, psychology, a lot of stuff. Oh, and including, in case you've ever wondered, which I've definitely wondered, why do people go in and shoot up buildings and just commit ridiculously heinous acts? And Ida, she has an answer, uh, though it may not be exactly what you're expecting. One last quick note before we get going with this. If you have friends that are deaf or hard of hearing and you think that they could really benefit from or would be interested in this podcast, then please refer them over to intheshoesof.org, where I plan on having every podcast episode transcribed, or at the very least, have a video available with captions, something of that nature, so that, you know, people who are hard of hearing or deaf can also enjoy this podcast. Ida, thank you so much for joining me. Should I call you doctor? No. I don't know. No? no. Okay, cool. I'm going to start off with the first question, um, which is quite important, and it's what shoes are you wearing right now? I'm wearing my um, black stilettos. Black stilettos. Nice. Can I get a picture of those too? Sure. Greg, the cameraman, pointed out that this was possibly a little bit of a creepy question. Thankfully, Ida was a really good sport about it. If you had to define yourself in the third person, take a step back, how would you do so? Curious, adventurous, passionate about life, and... Very joyful. That's super cool. Because I want to kind of like go through a little bit of a sequence with your life. So can you tell me about where you grew up, how it affected you, what kind of obstacles you faced or didn't face? Sure. Yeah, I actually had uh, quite an interesting journey, which is common with a lot of people from Iran that were born in the early 80s or just uh, through the revolution. Iran uh, had an entire revolution in the late 70s. And then starting in the early 80s, there was a war between Iran and Iraq which impacted and influenced a lot of us. And so me, along with a lot of other people, we were refugees. We had to leave. So I was born in Iran. I don't have any uh, memory because I left before I was two years old, but I have, you know, um, physical memory. Uh, I don't have thoughts that I can go back to and, and remember this or remember that, but I have physical memory of it. So we found this to be an interesting concept and... We didn't really touch upon it until later on in the podcast when Greg, he asked, well, what did you mean by that? What did you mean by physical memory? So Ida delves into it and paints a good picture for us. I didn't have any cognitive memories when I, uh, from, from my experience in Iran. Um, I have my cognitive memories all started in Sweden. Like I have my first memory when I was in my stroller. I was about two and a half, three years old in our new home. Like that was my first memory that I remember. So I, so I have a lot of memories in Sweden. 
but I have physical memory from my experience in Iran. And I'll tell you what that is. There's uh, this Iranian filmmaker, uh, Marjanis Satrapi, I believe I'm saying it correctly. And I think it was the uh, name of her movie, Persopolis, which is uh, an animation. But it was basically doing the movie... Uh, exp- like cr- showing the experience of all of the Iranians during the Gulf War and the refugees and what they had to do. And I remember my parents telling me, you know, when the bombings were happening, we all had an underground shelter we would go to. You know, we'd wake up in the middle of the night or dur- during the day, it doesn't matter. We'd all like, you know, run downstairs as a family, you know, hold each other, like scared, like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And then I was quite a precocious child. Um, I was apparently speaking full sentences at the age of one. Oh, wow. um, and so I'm like, what happened? What happened? What's going on? What's going on? You know, yeah. And this is, this is my family telling me that I don't remember this stuff. And then they're like, oh, you know, it's okay. You're safe. Okay. Nothing to be scared of. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to be scared of. And this is just me, I guess, calming myself down. I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> you were saying that. I was saying that. nothing to be scared of. It's not scary. It's not scary. You know? Oh, whatever, right? Um, and then... I remember I went with one of my friends to watch this movie, Persepolis, and I was, I was in my 20s. And we're watching it, and, you know, it's fascinating, it's cool, it's this, it's that. And then all of a sudden, it goes to a shot where, you know, the family's running down the stairs, and, you know, the sirens are going off, and you're hearing bombing. And this is in a movie theater, so you're hearing it, you know, surround sound. And I start bawling. And I start bawling. And it's just like, you know, like those deep, like... <gasps> You know, like you just can't, like uncontrollably, I start bawling. It's like all this area, and I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm kind of like choking up a bit. Um, but I'm like, wow, you know, I have some, some trauma got registered in my system because of that. You know, even though I don't have cognitive memories, like I don't remember any of that. Um, I don't have a vivid memory of any of that, but something inside of me still remembers that. And, you know, um, which is true, we do have trauma, precognitive trauma that we carry, which is a true experience. Um, so a lot of us may have reactions or startle responses or strong reactions to certain things, and we have no idea where it's coming from. Most likely it's precognitive. Yeah, most likely it's precognitive. That's why trying to figure out where it comes from is not necessarily a good therapeutic approach, in my opinion. It's more like, okay, you have this, let's work on the emotion that's being charged. Let's bring peace to that emotion. You know, and I remember growing up, I kind of had a strong startle response in general. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is where that came from. You know, um, so that started making sense to me. But yeah, it, it was it was very strong, strong visceral response. I was like, wow, like I it was just uncontrollable. It just it was this deep pain, I guess. And um, we had to flee because wherever we were at, they were bombing. So it was either you stay and die, or you run and live and so that was me being introduced to this world and I didn't know anything different because this is all I know and so the first place that we got a visa to as refugees was in Sweden I was about one and a half and so we migrated as a whole family so one of my uncles was about to be recruited into the army and so he had to actually leave uh, illegally because again he was either going to go in the army and die or he was going to get out any which way he could Pretty obvious choice. Right. So we all migrated to Sweden uh, as a whole family unit. And we waited there till we got our green cards to come here to the States. And that was interesting because that was a huge culture shock for my family. Uh, Iranians, you know, 
just like other Middle Easterns, are very conservative mm -hmm. in nature, especially when it comes to, let's say, things like sexuality. Mm -hmm. Scandinavian countries, specifically Sweden, is extremely open about that. So that was like one of the first things that popped out for our family. Like, okay, it's just, it's there. It's in your face. Literally and popped out. Literally, right? <laughs> So uh, that was like one of the biggest culture shocks or just the weather change. You know, it was 10 months of snow oh. and then two months of sun, 10 hour days of just under the sun. So it was a, an adjustment in that aspect. And then at the same time, their social systems were really accommodating to the people uh, that lived there. It's a very socialist country. And a small population, I think something like 7 million. So they take care of everybody very, very well, which was one of the reasons why we were able to get there so easily um, as refugees. Right away, we didn't know anybody there. We were like, where can we go? You, oh, you'll take us. We're coming. Perfect. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. And I remember growing up there. I have lots and lots of fun memories in Sweden. Um, it was very wholesome. Uh, it was very child-oriented. They really took care of uh kids and um, raising them well and taking care of their citizens and um, they were really into creating a wholesome peaceful society and, and you didn't face any like uh, prejudice or racism there, I, or? I did but they were very good at controlling it yeah. because yeah you know everyone there's blonde hair blue eyes you know Scandinavians and then here I am this you know ethnic looking child yeah. so yeah no I stood out I definitely stood out uh, but then there were other Iranians that had migrated there, so I wasn't the only one. There were other Middle Easterns that had migrated there, so I wasn't the only one. So there was a sense of tolerance uh, to that. But, you know, every, every nation has their pride for themselves, and that's the way that they get brought up and, and whatnot. Of yeah. And then I moved here when I was six years old. First, I was in Los Angeles for like a year and then just straight to Orange County. And I grew up here. Okay. How old were you when you came here? I was six years old. Six years old. Okay. And I remember thinking to myself about all of the differences uh, as, a, as a child. Like my first year here, you know, I, I, I was thinking in Swedish. I don't remember Swedish anymore because I never practiced it. Sure. But I remember I was like, wow, the children here are so different. You know, they seem really mean and angry. You know, why are they so angry? You know, they were a little hostile. At least uh, the school I went to in um, Los Angeles. Then when I came here to Orange County, it was a little bit different. You know, I went to a school where they were a lot more embracing, but then the teachers, the authority figures were a little interesting. So when my second grade teacher, I remember I was still in ESL. I didn't know English very well. And um, she was talking about like, oh, so one of the kids said, oh, you know, I just said a bad word. And she completely implemented the entire judicial system in the second grade. Okay, we're going to vote on it. How many people think that she said a bad word? How many people think she didn't say a bad word? And I was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, and it was basically based off of the opinions of non-witnessing students. And, and, and that was what was going to be the final say of what happened. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Doesn't sound like justice, right? Well, no. <laughs> But it also brought a different perspective for me here. And I'm like, wow, it's the same second graders that are in the court systems right now. Um, I have this expert witness that's going to tell you that what you said is wrong. And this expert witness doesn't know you, doesn't know the situation, wasn't actually there when anything happened. 
but they're going to prove why it's wrong based off of these statistics. And it's exactly the same thing that's going on. You know, and I'm like, wow, you get socialized very quickly into that. I'm like, okay, that was interesting. Um, you know, also trying to adapt here to this culture. Again, family coming as immigrants. They don't know the language very well. They're trying to make ends meet, things like that. We had to move a lot. We okay. had to move a lot. So I also had to move to a lot of different schools. So I never actually got to connect or find roots anywhere. I was constantly in this observer mode the whole time. Okay, this group of people, this school, you know, they're like this. And then this group of people in this school, they're like this. And it was always a different vibe everywhere I went, depending on the city, depending on the school system, depending on the socioeconomic status of the area. And I was constantly looking at them like, okay, why, why are these people so different? Why are these people like this? You know, oh, okay, I can connect with these people. I can relate to these. None of these people even know what a person is. I was like, always the only one. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So yeah, there was definitely in my uh, background, there was a sense of it was a little hard to connect. But then at the same time, I was trained by my life to be very comfortable in new and unknown situations. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have that fear of change or the apprehension. So there were there were two sides to it, yeah. um, and at the same time, even though I never fully connected to one group, I never got really clicky. It was easy to relate to people yeah. because there was always some aspect that I could relate to someone. Like because I looked for that, I looked for the yeah. point of relating. I didn't look for the point of disconnect. Like yeah. oh, okay, this is what we have in common. Okay, this is how we can relate. This is you know, and I would just that's the approach I would always take. Good. And how did that develop your identity then, I guess? I mean, or did it affect it in a bad way at all? Or was it just, it sounds like it's positive, actually, the way it affected you. I think so. Well, I, I choose to look at it that way. And at the same time, I'm also not really grounded or committed to one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I could look at that as a, as a hindrance to it, too. Um, I've also not been very interested in getting into a serious relationship and, and getting, you know, settling down and getting married and having children because to me it felt like, okay, it's an anchor. I have to be stuck here. Right. So it has had its effect in that aspect, definitely. Uh, you know, I can look at it. I'm, I'm, you know, 33 years old and that part of me hasn't quite sparked yet. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I can look at it and be like, okay, well, let's have a reality check about that. Like, what, how much of your upbringing is it? being affecting this because it is uh-huh. right yeah. yep. so and it's not necessarily the family upbringing it's more along um because family my family you know very traditional into you know they're always like i don't understand why you're not married because sure. you know you have your education you have your career you have your life you're you're of age you're probably past age uh, you know like the coming of age for this Pressure. yeah they don't get it. Like, it doesn't make sense to them because this is what you do. These are these are the steps that you take. You know, the, these are the processes of life. That's all they knew. My grandparents had an arranged marriage. My mom got married when she was in her, when she was 20, actually, 19, 1920. So they were, you know, that's what you do. You know, yeah. this is this is what you do. This is what they know. Yep. And then now we're here and I'm like, well, no, not necessarily. No. No, <laughs> like not me. You don't have to actually do whatever society dictates that you're supposed to do, quote unquote. Right. And whatever's part of society. Yeah. Yeah. So so I chose to see it that way. I chose to look at it that way. I've also, I mean, you know, again, just in Orange County itself, mm-hmm. 
moving up the socioeconomic ladder has been quite interesting to me as well too yeah just the, i'm interested in finding out about that as well right because when i first came here you know we were in a little bit more of a um lower socioeconomic status and then the population was different too um you know it was more minorities mm -hmm. and at the same time it was a lot more aggressive like there was a lot of school bullying going on uh actual fighting gangs uh you know teenage moms or moms in your high drugs. I was started off for drugs from the sixth grade, you know, from elementary school. Like it was just, it was there, it was part of the culture. It was just part of the environment. And then, you know, we started moving to, you know, more wholesome areas of Orange County. And I noticed the population was different. The demographics were different, less minorities in that sense. And it was a more peaceful environment. And even in my jobs, as well too so when i was working in the areas that i was serving lower socioeconomic status individuals i was working with that population of individuals as well too as colleagues oh, okay and yeah. and that was as a counselor yeah as a counselor too. yeah and the way that the work environment was affected and influenced by that was very different than when i started doing more let's say um administrative or higher up corporate work and things like that um, it was a different group of people that I was working with and the way that people related and the systems were very different, yeah. very different. And I, and I always looked at that. Yeah. My inner anthropologist, sociologist, psychologist was always like, okay, this is interesting. Okay. That's interesting. This yeah. is interesting. So those things always stood out to me. Yeah. Those things always stood out to me because I've always had to bear it all the time. Yeah. And it was almost like that was your own life crash course in uh, anthropology yes know, as opposed to going to college and studying it right you know firsthand about a lot of this right and and just something as small as just a little bubble of orange county let's just say right you yeah. know i've been here for about you know a couple decades mm -hmm. and and i could see so much variance in just the small little little suburbs of southern california yeah yeah and that's just that one place and then, of course, that's also motivated me to want to go see so many other places. I'm like, oh, okay, if this is what this little tiny area in the world has to offer, oh, my gosh. You know, that, that part of me that loves change and new experiences and humanity and so fascinated by people. Um, I can't wait to go see how other systems work and how other people work. And, you know, with the indigenous people of an area and then, you know, the, the minorities of the area, how they're going to work. And so, but right now you're... A practicing you're a, a marriage and family therapist right right and is that is that still something you're going to be doing as you yes i'm actually going completely virtual in my practice so i right oh, now really? i do oh, office cool. skype and phone so i'm uh transitioning my clients out from the office so i can go across the world and travel and you know do what i love to do which is help people be their you know reach their best potential and remove their obstacles and it's this world is not that scary and it's not so hard to you know find joy in life let's just find you know what's between you and that yeah. and let's push past it and let's break through it and that's a super fulfilling i mean that's a gift to be able to do that for a living yeah. I, I, that's a gift i, I agree yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, Seriously. I'm very, very grateful about that. And um, and at the same time, learn, absorb, observe, all these kind of things. Exactly. Just, just see, see what this beautiful planet Earth has to offer. Nice.
that's so cool. I'm super excited for you there. I have my guesses about what the answer is to this, but what would you say then is your primary passion in life? Definitely. I mean, it's no coincidence I became a marriage and family therapist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I definitely believe that the place to start with creating better societies is to start with creating more harmonious couples. So when couples are doing well, you know, they can turn into like a power couple. Then they can, uh, you know, usually they have children, not always, but then they raise uh, healthier children, Mm -hmm. which they start creating better and healthier, more harmonious societies. Mm -hmm. That's the approach and premise that I take. So that's one thing I'm very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Another thing is culture. I'm super passionate about culture and mythology because mythology drives cultural beliefs and social beliefs. Mythology drives cultural beliefs and social beliefs. That is a really interesting statement right there. Could you elaborate on that though? Sure. Sure. Uh, So, you know, for example, the Abrahamic religions are very popular from uh, Islam to Christianity to Judaism. And then there's Eastern philosophy like Buddhism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism. And then there's there's tribal mythology as well. So I'm I'm learning about you know African tribal mythology of the like Usun and the Orishas. And Later on, Ida and I were talking, and she recalled some more of the uh, tribal mythologies, uh, and was kind of like wondering why she couldn't remember all of them. But to me, it was kind of fascinating that she was able to recall all of these different mythologies and and religions and all that in the conversation. Anyway, there's some great nuggets of information coming up. I don't know the terminology as well yet. I'm still learning. This is very cool. Right. But, you know, in in Native American mysticism, um, from the teachings of Carlos Castaneda, actually, a UCLA anthropologist. (laughs) That's right. I thought he was here. Yeah. Yeah. UCLA. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he definitely inspired the inner anthropologist in me. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting to see how different uh, belief systems work, but how much connection there is among them. Again, you know, I'm, I'm definitely more into seeing the connections and the, and the things that create a whole, not the separations and the things that create division. Right, right. And do you think with the mythology that you've studied so far, have you found that there are, there are some that like are, are better for promoting a better and healthier society or some that are worse or some that are just, or it's just, you know, no, it's, uh, or there, maybe there's no good or bad about it. I don't yeah, I haven't delved that deep into, or, or I don't have quite a personal opinion about it yet. I don't know as much yet to have a personal opinion. But some of the things that stood out to me are that they all seem to be like teaching grounds. Mm-hmm. You know, they teach people about life. And everyone has a certain thing that they get drawn to or attracted to. One of the things that really stood out to me in that one course was the fact that there's a belief system in every society from, you know, Eskimos to Aborigines to, you know, Western societies to Eastern philosophy. Everybody, everybody, everybody has a belief system. And one of the premises behind that is to try to explain the things that we don't have control over and why they happen. I think there's validity to that. And I think there's validity to the fact that there may be something beyond what our five senses can grasp. 
This has been an interesting recurring theme in a lot of my conversations. You know, our five senses are quite limited. Definitely. And I always use... Our perception of this reality, right? Right. Yeah. I always use the dog whistle as that perfect example, yeah. where there's a spectrum of sound or a sound wave, mm -hmm. and our ears can only hear one portion of that. The dog can hear that other portion, and that whistle's going off, and the dog can hear it, but we can't. So just because we can't hear it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. Same with if we can't see it, touch it, smell it, taste it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Exactly. So there's something more that's driving us and humanity than meets the eye. Which takes me to another place that I'm really fascinated about, which is science and physics and, you know, chemistry and how, all, how everything works is super fascinating. Um, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that. You know, when you look at the, how our solar system works, nothing new is actually happening. We're constantly just circling the sun. Yeah. And then the earth is spinning around itself right. and then circling Very the sun. Fast too. Right? It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Right? So we're just reliving the same thing over and over and over again, which is that cyclical nature of our patterns as humans as well. And then at the same time, when you look at it, there's a very clear order to how all of it works, you know, from all the planets and their positions and they never deviate and it, and it works and how it, there's all the space, but then there's the pull of gravity. And when you get down to an atomic level, the atom looks exactly the same as our solar system, where it has, you know, a nucleus and a proton and the electrons are circling around. You know, I don't think there's a coincidence with that. You know, that's not like, oh, that's, that's a cool coincidence. It's more like there's an intelligence behind that, huh. right? And so think human behavior and motivation, uh, mythology and belief systems, um, as well as science, I think those three combinations definitely speak to who I am as a person and why we work the way we do. Why do we live the way we do? And what's the purpose of life? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and wow, you're like almost answering some of my other questions that I have too, which is really cool. So, and when you say mythology, I almost feel like instead of saying religion, you're saying mythology, you know, or do you have kind of a more or less an idea of what your belief system is with regard to that and, and coalescing, you know, your understanding of science and mythology. I've read some religious texts. I've read some books about mythology and Eastern philosophy and obviously Native American uh, traditions. And I'm learning about some African tribal traditions. And I think because that, that part of me, you know, the first word that I used to describe myself is curious. Mm -hmm. That curious aspect of me is just constantly just trying to absorb and learn and just find find a connection between everything. Yeah. I haven't uh, committed to one or the other. Again, maybe my upbringing as well, too. I was like, wait, but I can go over there. You know? Wait, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, all of this is still building up towards something because obviously when I'm going to, you know, create research and I, I'm going to go from an angle and a lens, I need to have to choose a preference or a belief that I'm going with. So to answer that question, I'm still developing it. Yeah, yeah okay. I think that's a very fair answer too, definitely. Okay. And I like that answer because there is some, too often I hear people that are absolutely positive about a certain thing, which always scares me when it comes to like dogma and all that. Kind yes, of that, you know. yes. Yeah, I don't reject quite anything completely, but I don't fully 
say that this is the it. This is the only yeah. thing. I'm like, okay, I like this part of this. I like that part of that. Not too crazy about this part. Mm, yeah. Don't know about that. But let me let me find out more. Let me find out more. Yeah, and I think you well you hit on something earlier that kind of summed it up is that it's almost like we're we're and I, I don't want to offend any of the listeners, but it, it's almost like we're we're creating things creating these stories, these mythologies to explain things that we just don't quite understand in our limited capacity as human beings and our finite understanding and finite lives. Right, right, right. And and that's what we're constantly doing. That's why research exists. That's why um, science exists. That's why mythology and religion and all these kind of things exist because of exactly what you said. We're trying to understand. That's why psychology exists. Yeah. That's, that's the whole point of it. It's like, right. Why do you do what you do? Uh-huh. You know, I was uh, talking about this yesterday. Um, you know how you said uh, the mythology is trying to explain things that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I was also attributing that same dynamic to maladaptive coping skills. For example, we use the only tools that we know when we come across a feeling that we don't know what to do with. Right. Right. Can you explain, elaborate on that a little bit? Right. I was, uh, I was talking about like, you know, someone that's under stress or is dealing with grief or abuse or trauma Mm -hmm. and maladaptive coping skills. You know, some people, you know, may go towards substance abuse or emotional eating or excessive sleeping, like numbing themselves away or excessive TV watching, Um, you know, exercising vigorously to the point where they're, you know, taxing their body or injuring themselves and stuff. Because these things exist, and at some point, to some extent, they, they, they give you feel-good hormones, and they make you feel better in one moment, but too much of it, uh, too often, they're maladaptive when it comes to emotional coping. It doesn't address the underlying pain, fear, um, grief, you know, anger, whatever is going on there. It's not, it's not ever addressing all of that. But we're going to go ahead and use the only things that we know that are available to us, that we know give us immediate feelings of, you know, feeling better when we don't know what to do with an uncomfortable feeling, which is the same exact thing. So people will uh, uh, create mythology that I, I could say that people would create mythology and religious systems to explain things like natural disasters. Uh, you know, why volcanoes erupt all of a sudden for no reason, why a tsunami happens, uh, you know, why uh, this area of the world just got wiped out. Because they're like, you know, they don't know what to do with that. There's no control and they don't have the coping skills for it or they, they don't, you know, maybe technology wasn't built, you know, to have, um, you know, buildings that'll keep you safe in a flood or something like that. You know what I mean? In an earthquake. And so they needed to create belief systems to address those fears i mean that's scary that's scary to be like you know this earth can swallow me alive any minute and it does and i have no say in it whatsoever right you know exactly so please elder tell me why this happened yeah what what can i do not to you know do that again or not be swallowed up by you know the tsunami you know or something yeah Yeah. we want to we want to survive for sure right At this point, I asked Ida when she decided that this was what she wanted to do to help people in this capacity as a therapist. Uh, By the way, the wind picks up a little bit, so it's a little bit annoying at first, but uh, just bear with us. That meant, though, I remember, so when I was, when I started college, I wanted to go into the scientific field, and, you know, I was taking my 
um, intro to bio and chemistry and physics. And, you know, it was really nice. And along those lines, I had to take a humanities course. Oh, psychology looks interesting. I took psych and I was like, <laughs> you know, I've never been so excited about anything the way I was about like, this is fascinating. Yeah. This explains. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is the, my neighbor. This is my coworker. This is, this is my cousin. That's definitely my cousin. Oh, this one's me. That's definitely me. I decided for my bachelor's, I would study sociology and cultural anthropology to get a better picture because I was like, oh, if I'm just going to do only psychology, it's going to be such a bird, uh, like such a tunnel vision in my uh, in my opinion, that's my opinion, yeah. you know, where I'm like, okay, I'm, I keep learning about the psyche of this person in a very, very deep and profound way. But what about this person in this society? What about this person and their cultural upbringing? You know, I'm like, oh, I need to, I, I need to absorb that information as well. Never thought I wanted to go into research. Yeah. That developed after I was, I've been such a consumer of other people's research and methods. And uh, when I started putting everything into practice, I started with myself. I started with my family. I started with friends and then colleagues and clients of just pretty much anyone who was open to it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, some of these are real bad shortcomings, you know? And I'm like, this yeah. is not, this is not feasible. Right. You can't tell a person that's in the middle of an argument to be like, stop, you know? And like, they're just, that's, that's their pattern. Like you work on something else first and then you address this or, um, you need to work on their first, first their like internal coping mechanism before you start adding all of these, uh, tools and techniques. And, and some of them just were not feasible, you know, yeah. because it just they didn't resonate with a certain population. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or, no, I'm not going to say something back to my parent. Like, please don't talk to me that way. Because maybe you come from a culture that uh, you respect authority so much that something like that would be extremely disrespectful. So how do you address that? How do you address that with the person's background? It's really encouraging hearing Ida talk about taking a holistic approach to her practice. It's like she's not a believer in boxing things in, you know, like things must be done this way. So kudos to her, right? And not to sound so negative about the field of psychology because they're really working on addressing that. Sure. They're, they're really, really working on addressing that. Um, but then I realized, I'm like, well, if, if I'm, you know, using all these tools that we have and I'm finding shortcomings, then why don't I produce something uh, for that gap? There's yeah. a gap there. There's a gap in this area. Well, you know, that's, that's what you do. Then you start creating yeah. rather than just absorbing. And so this is, so I'm like, okay. And then I realized, I'm like, since I tend to think on grand scales and like, you know, the whole globe and everybody, I'm like, so, okay, well, I can't do it in this tiny little bubble called Orange County. I got to go out there and see the rest of the world. Cause what I have to say works for this little area. Yeah. Can it transfer and is it generalizable to another area in the world? Yeah. You know, super cool. You've seen a lot of things. I mean, you've talked with a lot of people. You've seen probably for lack of a better word, the, the dark side of humanity, I guess, oh, and yeah. things, you know, what, in your opinion, and I, you alluded already to a few things, like you think uh, the secret to really creating better societies is better couples, better, you know, parenting, essentially. What else do you think are, are like the, the ails, things that just like ail society right now? And if you have any ideas for solutions, too. I think it's just so fear-driven. Uh, and I think the fact that people are not as curious as they should be, they're just very open to being spoon fed something mm -hmm. and they, they don't go out there to learn more. 
my true belief, knowledge is power. Learning something new is extremely powerful and empowering mm -hmm. when you put it to practice. Yeah. You know, you know, people feel very lonely. People feel very isolated. Again, this could probably be very much specific to this area because other areas of the world, they have a strong sense of community. Sure. You know, yeah. so this might be an ailment in this area. Right. But I think, I, and I think this is, this is a part of humanity that we have to accept. Humanity's got a really ugly side to it. Humanity is primitive, period. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> we really are, no matter what, how we try to shine it up. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, just, yeah. I mean, the fact that we can put a leash on a dog and have it be our submissive little pet tells you something. I mean, it's super cute. I mean, I love dogs and I want to pet myself too. And I would, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that I'm beyond that or past that. Yeah. Just acknowledging that's part of the humanity that we can do that. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. And that's a mild example, right? <laughs> right. That's a, that's a mild example, but it, but it's just kind of how we work. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a sense of hierarchy that exists mm -hmm. in, in our mentality and in, in uh, all forms of life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, bees have a queen bee or, um, you know, in the jungle, the lions or something, you know, something like that. I'm getting really uh, Disney here, but, <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. you know, but, uh, you know, but the hierarchies exist everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so when hierarchies exist and then tribes also exist, cliques also exist, you stick to what you know. And then, then fear exists. Then that creation of us versus them starts existing. And that's where I think is the biggest demise of humanity us versus them there's no us versus them you know there's there's no us versus them that that, that doesn't exist that's a lie right you know it doesn't have to be that way you know when we and and i don't like the role media plays in it media is very skewed media is very one-sided the people behind productions have their own agenda but that's true everywhere Okay, I'm not just saying, oh, media is bad. Media is also very good. Like, look at something like this. This is also media. Yeah. But I have to choose to go out of my way or I have to be a person that's interested in, in these kind of things. This is not mainstream. Exactly. Right? Yeah. True. So I think there's something missing in that area as well, too, mm -hmm. to make other perspectives mainstream. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, so... That's some pretty heavy stuff. I think, yeah, yeah you're really hitting on some uh, major things that, especially yeah. in this day and age in our society, that yeah. um, I agree. I looked over your intro for what you're doing and just your premise behind what you're doing, and I could totally relate. My belief is now that the internet exists, we are all uh, pulsating at the same beat. We're connected all at the same time. Doesn't matter. It's across the ocean time zone doesn't matter we can all communicate instantly at the same beat there's no yeah. more arrhythmia there right, right. same right. heartbeat yeah. you know with the information just pulsating at the same time yep. in real real time right yep. so i think it's beautiful i think that's beautiful i think that is probably one of the biggest strongest um, tools and technologies and creations that we have to mm -hmm. Uh, reduce and possibly at some point eliminate the us versus them mentality yeah. and things that I liked about it like a couple of things that really stood out I remember there was this uh, video that went viral on Facebook mm -hmm. and it was this really really 
probably impoverished area of Malaysia. You know, they like lived in huts or something. I'm getting into the dark stuff because I'm I'm a psychologist. Yeah, I go there. Course, I go there. So um, it was about a 10-month-old little baby girl. And this mother was beating this baby severely. And in the corner was this probably six, seven-year-old boy watching this. So he's recording this in his mind, learning, learned behavior right there. I, I don't know who's related to who in what way, but I'm just watching, okay. And this is how a cycle of darkness and humanity works. Don't know that mother's background of why she's doing this. Obviously she's come from some kind of trauma herself too, or she's sick or something, you know, we don't know. We don't know. And we're just seeing that snapshot. Why does something like that go viral? Because it was so painful to witness, you know, because we know so much better. Like you just, you don't beat a 10 month old baby like that severely. I personally didn't even want to believe it was real. I'm like, it's probably a doll. Like you just can't hit a baby that much. And the the baby keeps getting up and trying. It was, it was really painful to watch. Okay. To say the least. And of course, I'm, and, and whoever has, is recording is like saying things. Afterwards, I was like, I can't just, you know, witness something like that and not know more about it. Yeah. Okay. So I started researching that and seeing what was going on. Yeah. So because of that video, so a neighbor, that was a neighbor. So I guess the neighbor was saying, hey, stop hitting your child. You're hurting and you could, you know, kill your child. Stop that. And um, because of that video again, technology, that um, video got to the local police and they took the baby into foster care and they put the woman in jail. Now, if that wasn't there, then this baby, who knows what would have happened to this baby? Oh, yeah. You know know what I mean? And then, you know, I got to know a little bit more background and I was like, wow, this is, you know, as painful as it was to witness that. Look, this is from just a, a really, really, really tiny, tiny, tiny little corner in the world that I would have never known existed. I would have never known this existed. This went viral on Facebook and I'm seeing this. And then, you know, because of that, you know, people were very passionate about it and this is wrong and this and that. And because of all of this, some justice came out of it. You know, I'm not saying we have the best systems out there yet, but some justice came out of it. Something came out of it. Something proactive came out of it. So that's also what I see, where I think this could be a very, very special era with, with all of this access to this technology. And I think it also brings accountability into place. Like I thought, I thought it, when Uber first came out, I was like, oh, you rate the driver and, and the passenger? It's like, uh-huh. I love that. Yeah. You know, that's I good. love that. Because... This is what happens when people go into, like, the sociopaths that have, you know, done some of the sickest crimes out there. What gives them the capacity to do that? They isolate, and there's nothing monitoring that, right? In societies where they're very community-based and everyone kind of knows each other's business, it's really annoying in one aspect because you can't get away with anything, but it keeps people in check because you, you can't get that sick, Yeah. right? Because yeah. you don't isolate, you don't marginalize, and you can't go off in a little corner and start creating some sick bombs and like go bomb people and uh, kill masses and things like that. There's, you know, and so things with rating systems like this also keeps people accountable for what they do and what role they play in anything. Mm -hmm. So I also think things like that bring a little bit more sense of community, even though it's virtual, even though there's a lot of room to grow in that area. But I also believe that helps in that aspect, too. I agree with you there. Yeah, for sure.
Yeah, and I think we don't have to talk about it right now, but I'd be interested in getting at some point your opinion on the psyche of a person who actually goes out and feels the need to shoot up a school or something horrendous like that. Like, what is going on? And the psyche, is there a kind of general, like, well, this is probably what's happening. If you have... All comes down to fear. Fear? Fear. Okay. Fear. So? It all comes down to fear. So, you know, I've worked with um, severely mentally ill population, like uh, people with psychosis, sure. sociopaths, you know, uh, perpetrators and whatnot. And the more I get into their psyche, the, the common thread between all of them is fear. Whether their fear is being expressed through anger, uh, whether it's through hostility, whether it's violating other people's boundaries, whether it's killing someone off or masses off, but it's fear. What is the object of their fear? I guess that is a little bit more personal, but it goes back to the us versus them mentality. A person doesn't want to get rid of a certain population unless they feel that there's a threat from that population. And the reason why I say fear is because that is the core of human motivation, safety and security, okay? And the core of survival. So anything that comes and taps into that in any way can create sociopaths and mainly sociopaths and, and, you know, psychosis, actually. Most people with psychotic disorders are very, very scared. I mean, they, they're so scared. They're scared of their own shadows. Yeah. You know, uh, working with perpetrators, uh, you know, um, that have sexually abused and molested young children and things like that. Again, the entire session, they're like this. They're, they're just scared. They're just, yeah. they're scared. Let me ask you this, because I'm, I'm curious. Because um, whenever I hear cases, and, and I, I have the utmost respect for people, someone can actually work with them and try to, you know, get them better, you know, address some of the things that are going on. And I don't know what the answer is about actually solving any of that. Because any, anyway, my question is, how do you resolve, like, your inner, there's got to be something within you that's like, all right, this is horrific, and I can't stand these actions that this person has done. And then your professional side, that's like, I'm here to help you. How do you do that? Luckily, you know, the stigma of a psychologist is that safe place you can go to. Yeah. Right. And if you make that person feel safe, they can open up to those vulnerable places. And that's one of the things that a psychologist does is create a safe space, a safe environment. You know, it makes it safe. It's safe to be you and and whatnot. Whatever that you is. Whatever that you is. It's non-judgmental. It's accepting. Okay, I'm not here to make you feel bad about your decisions in life. You clearly have yourself and other people in your life that are doing that for you. I don't need to add to that mix. Okay, so let's work past that and let's see your motivations behind what you've done. Let's see what the core is, what's charging all of that. And let's work through that. Let's bring peace to those areas. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I want to get it a little bit lighter than in topic. Okay. Uh, just, uh, no, no, this is good because I'm, I, I myself can be like, let's just talk all day about whatever, you know, and go down any sort of rabbit hole yeah. or dark place. But uh, I kind of want to know what brings her joy and what her day to day may look like. Uh, things that give me joy. I love being outdoors. I yeah. love nature. I love nature from bugs to worms to dogs to cats to butterflies. Bugs to and, worms too. Yeah, like I'll play okay. with bugs and stuff. Like I just, <laughs> That's so cool. 
again, it's really fascinating. Like, oh, you move like this, and that's so cool, and you can just crawl forever, and I can just do this, and you can just keep crawling. So, or I go and I look at,、uh, you know, the back bay here has, you know, its own habitat, and there's like one-armed crabs, and I think they're so fascinating. They just sit there and they just go like this with one arm. One or one、crab. or one claw. I don't know. They're not born like that, right?、Or、I don't know. I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of them. So maybe I don't know. It's a genetic mutation, or that's just what they are. It's just they're just they just stand there. If like if you stand still, they'll just go like. It's like the coolest thing. Like I just get so fascinated. Like I sit there and look at them. Like、yeah. that's so cool. Mesmerized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So those things mesmerize me. Yeah. And then let's say about people. You know, I have clients. You know, they mesmerize me as well too. You know, there a lot of my clients have. Honored me by you know opening to、yeah. their deepest vulnerabilities and growing from it, and it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful to see a human being go through that. It's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you know, I'm just like oh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I bet you get chills sometimes. I do. Yeah, I, I mean, do. I would. I get sometimes chills just like in interviews. Like, yeah. So amazing, what's happening right now? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. When you think of humanity and just like kind of going through life in in general, it seems to me like. What you're painting here is, is almost like when I look at the sky here; it's blue and sunny, and you seem tend to have more of a brighter outlook. What do you think about like the the future of humanity and where we're where we're headed and the general purpose of humanity? I could use maybe some psychological terms that I've learned,、um, right, you know,、that. like、uh, in behavioral analysis. Yeah. So when a change is ready to happen, you go through a, something called an extinction burst. Extinction burst. Yes.、Okay. Which means it's gonna get as bad as it can get, and then the change is gonna happen.、Okay. So, based off of what I'm seeing and how things go, and looking at the cyclical nature, looks like we're probably gonna go through one really, really ugly global mess, and then from there, we're all gonna be like, especially because we have that we're pulsating at the same beat, we're all gonna be like globally, like, no, this is just no, we just can't do this anymore. Right. This is not for us. But It's gonna go through probably an extinction burst, which is, which is probably as bad as it can get, because with all of this, you know,、um, singular pulse going on, which means that ugly side is also connected. Oh, it's pulsing、uh, right along. Yeah, the, yeah. It, so yeah. you know, the you know, but I believe in a balance. Life balances itself out.、Yeah. This earth has always balanced itself out. Yeah, and.、Um, Yeah, so I think we're going、uh, on our way to an extinction burst. Okay, well, that's a really good way to put it. I've never heard anybody call it, call it that, but、uh, yeah, a really cool way of saying it. it's going to get ugly before it gets better. Get uglier, I guess. Pretty much. Pretty ugly. Yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I, I just have a couple more questions,、um, and the first one is kind of a, a little bit deeper and very personal to you. But when you're when you're on your deathbed and You're looking back on your life. What is it that you want to say? Like, oh, I'm so glad this has happened. I'm so glad that I built up this legacy, and this is what I'll, I'll probably be remembered for.、Uh, probably to have opened up an avenue for humanity to be more evolved. Think that you know, if whatever avenue that is, but just a path, a path to help people be. Their full potential and their best, and to create more harmony in the world.、Uh -huh. That's cool. Oh yeah. yeah, very, very, very clear, straightforward. 
It's more harmony. Yeah. One last final question. This is one where I'm going to set the scene a little bit for you. And so I want you to imagine that one day you're walking through, let's say that you're in London, actually, and you've begun your travels. And you're going to have to bear in mind, this is going to get a little bit sci-fi-y, but that's, that's all right. You're walking through a lush green park. It's, let's say it's Hyde Park. You're walking through it, and all of a sudden, the spacecraft comes down, because obviously spacecrafts always come down in the middle of Hyde Park. Right. You know, yeah. Al steps an alien. He looks a lot like that actor, Benedict Cumberbatch, and even speaks like Benedict Cumberbatch for whatever reason. We don't know why. He does, but he's like, I only have 10 minutes here, and I'm not going to even try to emulate Benedict Cumberbatch, but... I only have 10 minutes here, but I really, I'm part of, I'm on a mission to find out what life here on earth means and how you, you've been selected. You're the only person this alien is going to interview about how you see and perceive life on this planet. What would you tell this alien? Oh, wow. Great question. What would I tell this alien? I I would know. I would know what to say. Um, This is a very beautiful place. It's majestic. It's quite majestic. The, the world has so many vibrant colors and experiences to offer. And along with everything else that exists, there's a duality to our nature. So with the beauty, there's an ugly side to humanity as well. And I find that it's very beautiful that we can still maintain our beauty within the ugly. And there's a lot of variation to experience from speaking humans to barking dogs to insects that coordinate on a level we don't even understand, you know? So enjoy that. Enjoy the variation and how different expressions of life can exist from the one-armed crab (laughs) (laughs) to the little worm that wiggles, you know? And welcome to our world. Not a bad place to be. That's so cool. All right. I think that I think he, he would have a pretty good impression then. So cool. Thank you. Uh, I love that. That's a really cool explanation. Thank so, you. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, episode of In the Shoes of. Thank you. Thank cool. you very much. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of In the Shoes of. If you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel at intheshoesof.org. I'm Jeremy Nickel, the host and producer of the show. Until the next time, see you later.